to the Enneagram journey. We're going to spend some time today talking about how we can learn to differentiate one number from another. For example, nines and ones look an awful lot alike. That's the hardest number to differentiate when teaching Know Your Number. But twos and eights, not so hard, even though they share a line on the Enneagram. Joel's going to join me for the conversation. Uh, He'll take responsibility for the questions, and he always seems to come up with some of his own. Thanks for letting me join you and help out. We're going to jump right into this with a question from Abigail. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Abby, and I think that I'm a type 6 on the Enneagram. I've been recently wondering if I might be a type 2, and there are two reasons for this. Um, Primarily, I don't have sort of like a shame reaction that I've heard is typical um, when people find out what their number is. Um, There's nothing really about type 6 that makes me feel um, embarrassed or ashamed. I really resonate with a lot of the characteristics of a type 6, being fear-driven and anxious um, and kind of swirling thoughts in my head. Um, Another component of this whole second-guessing my type is the anger piece. I'm not really sure when I do get angry if that's a type two with a one wing coming out or if that's the um, the anxiety-driven anger that um, you've talked about briefly. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak more to what the anger of a type six looks like and um, maybe that would help me figure out what type I really am or maybe this will be a longer journey. Um, thanks for all that you do. I really appreciate your work. Abigail, thanks for your question. I um, want you to know that lots of people ask the same sort of questions about how to know for sure between two or three numbers which one best describes them. So um, let me talk to you a little bit about sixes, and then I want to talk to you about twos, and I think that'll help. I might differentiate some for you in all of that. Sixes are struggling most of the time with anxiety. Their passion or their sin is fear, but what they're really struggling with, I would redefine as anxiety because they're concerned about possible future events. Some numbers get embarrassed or a little uncomfortable when they hear their their number taught. Not so much with sixes, though, because they're working so hard to try to figure out if that's their number. So while other people are a little embarrassed that you know some things about them or other people get a little squirmy about what I might say, for example, that often twos give to get, sixes are just intently listening to see if what's being said or if what they're reading describes them. I hope I've said or that you've heard somebody say or that you've read that not everything that describes a number will fit every six or every two or every seven. So let's set aside the shame and embarrassment thing that comes with a lot of numbers and consider that you may just be trying to figure out if you're that number, if you're correct, because that's what's important to you. Secondly, I would say, I don't know how old you are, but There are a lot of women in my generation, and I'm a baby boomer, born between 46 and 64, who identify as twos on the Enneagram who are actually sixes. And the reason for that is they identify as twos because of the role they have taken on in our culture that was expected that they would be generous and giving and helping 
and kind and sensitive and all of that whole package that we bought into as what it means to be a woman in the 50s and 60s. In terms of being a two and being angry, two goes to eight in stress. So the way you know that you're not doing well is that in the bottom of your number or a place in your number where you're unhealthy, kind of leaning toward excess in your number. Then in that space, you're just busy helping everybody. You do whatever you think will make people want you, and you give beyond your capacity so you're tired. And then you organically, if you don't choose it, move to eight. And that's usually a lateral move, so you're moving to the lower side of eight unless you're intentional about it. And that's where the anger comes from. And it's kind of surprising to you and kind of surprising to other people when you've been helping and giving and anticipating what other people need. And then all of a sudden you pop up with, why are you asking me where your cheerleader uniform is? That's your business. You keep up with that. And by the way, you need to do your laundry. Twos are not afraid. Twos don't usually have trouble recognizing their number when it's taught or when they read about it. Twos are generous, but their main concern is not the common good, and they don't struggle a lot with possible future events. They're far more focused on what's happening right now. Sixes, of course, are the opposite of the things I just said, which is why I was giving that example. And most importantly, I think, sixes don't trust themselves, and twos do. Can you give a difference between the anxiety that that twos have and the anxiety that sixes have? That's a good point. Most anxiety for twos is about relationships and whether or not they're okay and whether or not everybody's happy and whether or not somebody's going to go away. And most of the anxiety that sixes have is about um, climate control or rising crime rate or E. coli in lettuce or whether or not their children are safe uh, on the way to school or whether or not they have enough savings. It's a, it's a different kind of angst. I heard you say right there that usually you will make a lateral move when going to your stress number. And you've been talking a lot lately about the high side and low side of stress and security. And I think it's just been a game changer for a lot of people and given a lot of people some hope. Uh, you talk about how the Enneagram is one system that gives you something to do. It's not just this is how you are. So there's already that hope and that gift that it brings. I'm sure you've said it before, but I've never heard you say that it's a lateral move. So when you go to your stress or security number, so first question is making sure I understand that right. And then second question might be to, uh, will you elaborate? So when you're in average in your, in your number, in your personality and whatever happens and you switch over to your stress number, then you, that will be, you will be an average in that number, your stress number. Unless and, you're intentional. And, unless you're intentional. Correct. And same with if you're, unhealthy, below average, or healthy, hopefully if you're healthy, then that'll be a, a healthy move to your number. Is that how that works without intentionality? 
So the reason I answered it the way I did is because it's my sense that Abigail hasn't done a lot of Enneagram work. And so I was, you know, I forget that we're talking to more people than Abigail, especially when we get the voice recording. So when you first start doing Enneagram work and you haven't learned yet about the high side and the low side and other numbers, you're just trying to figure out yours. Then you intuitively move, I believe, kind of equally with where you are. And if you're stressed, you're not in the healthy side of your number, right? Because when you're in the healthy side of your number, then that's because you're managing your stress well. If Abigail's a two, she can learn from making mistakes when she's stressed and in eight, from learning about healthy eight and average eight and unhealthy eight. She can learn to choose the high side of eight when she's really stressed and she knows that she can make things better or worse with her response. And another question, and it will also be a good transition question for us to the, the next voicemail. You talked about the anxiety and you did a great job of explaining the difference between the anxiety of a six and a two. Can you go ahead and talk about the anxiety that a one might feel so that we can handle that whole stance, and then that will lead into our next question. Sure. So probably for people who don't know about stances, we might want to talk about that just a second and say that stances are determined by which is repressed, thinking, feeling, or doing. And so for ones, twos, and sixes, they're not productive thinkers. And that causes one to struggle with anxiety. you can think your way out of fretting if you're a thinker. You have to learn to think your way out of anxiety if you're not. And so anxiety for ones is about whether or not they're good enough. They, um, they arrive in the world and pretty soon feel like they're flawed in some way, like there's something basic that's wrong with them. And so they don't think they're good enough, so they desperately try to be correct or right. And in that trying, they have lots of anxiety if they fail. They also have a constant inner critic that tells them every time they get something wrong and every time they don't do things well and as well as they could have done them. And I think that creates an awful lot of anxiety. And... Uh, ones kind of think you, you're gonna judge them really harshly over minor things. And that's because they judge themselves harshly over minor things. And they have anxiety around that. Yeah. So that will semi lead to the next question from Amy. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Amy and I have a question for you. I have heard you say that People who are trying to make a decision whether or not they are type 9 or type 1, that that is the hardest decision on the Enneagram to distinguish between the two. I'm a type 1 with a wing 9, and it was so hard for me to decide that. And so I was just wondering if you could explain why it was so difficult for me to figure out if I was a 9 with a wing 1 or a 1 with a wing 9. Thank you so much. Hi, Amy. I think... um... One of the reasons it's so difficult is because nines can have both wings. 
from childhood. And the rest of us have one wing in the first half of life and we add the other wing in the second half of life. And I think it's hard to determine the difference between wanting to avoid conflict and wanting to get something right. And that's, that's the piece that you have to figure out. Nines don't want to do anything wrong or say any wrong, anything wrong or step wrong because they're concerned that it's going to cause fragmentation in relationship or a disconnect in relationship. And ones don't want to do anything wrong because they're afraid that that justifies the fact that there's something wrong with them. So really, there are some significant differences between uh, ones and nines. One's orientation to time is the present moment. And for nines, orientation to time is the past. Ones are very concerned about doing every step of a task correctly. Nines just kind of want to get the task done. Nines are really laid back. Ones are fairly uptight. So I think maybe uh, part of the difficulty in distinguishing between the two numbers also has to do with what questions we ask people who are struggling uh, and how those questions can lead them to kind of know themselves and be able to, to make that determination. Nine with a one wing and a one with a nine wing look an awful lot alike. And I think the reason for that is centered around the fact that they're both avoiding doing something wrong. They're just avoiding that for different reasons. Is there a question that you could think that you could provide to ask someone who is struggling that could help them get to that point to help them arrive, arrive there? So the first and best question is the question about the voices. You know, ones are so surprised. You see that when we're in teaching somewhere. When ones find out that other people don't have that horrible inner critic that talks to them all the time, they're so surprised that everybody doesn't have the critic. And then they often cry when they find out that at least other people have it because then they don't feel so alone in that. And if one accurately describes the critic, so there are never any attaboys or girls. it's always what you're doing wrong and what you're doing bad and how you should have known differently. Nines just don't have that. They don't have it. So that's always a help in teaching ones because that's a deal breaker. The other question that we could add if somebody's not quite sure, another question that we could add is, do you care what other people think? Because if nines know they're right, they don't care. And even if ones know they're right, they need other people to know they're right, to agree with them about whatever they're taking a stand on. There, we were at a workshop recently, and uh, there's a gentleman in the room who said he was a seven, and that when he goes to stress as a one, that he hears it. And as I, as I understand it, and I'm a seven as well, that it's not, you don't have the critic then, we don't have the critic then we have some of the same thoughts and some uh, a lot of self-talk self-talk and that that dials up a notch uh, as far as there's a lot of self-criticism mm -hmm. and criticism of other people but 
you do say that it's it's not the critic though. So one let me the- tell you what it is. Ones tell me that they've heard the critic since they were children, that they hear it every day, that they somewhere along the line kind of started to trust it because it seemed to be connected to their successes in some way. Sevens don't do well with criticism. So when they have any self-talk that's critical, they react to it as if it was bigger than it is. Because for them it is bigger than it is. If a seven, if you had a, a recording that you listened to all day, of a list of things that you consistently don't do right and don't do well and you should have known from last time and why would you do that again and you probably shouldn't have this position if that's how you're going to handle that. If you heard that all day, it, it would break a seven. You, you, because of your half range of emotions and your tolerance for negativity, you just wouldn't make it. But because sevens aren't every other number, when sevens are critiqued or when they have that self-talk, when they hear me talk about what it sounds like for ones, it feels like it's the same for them. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. And that's going to lead us to our next question, which is from Carissa. Hi. So I'm either a four with a three wing or a three with a four wing. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak into the difference of that. I always thought I was a four because I frequently feel misunderstood. I like to be the most unique person in the room and I can really sit in melancholy feelings frequently. I can do that. Um, But recently I started wondering if I might just be a three who's been around creative people her whole life. Or I, you know, I'm naturally, naturally good at the arts So I've been around artsy people, so I know that I need to be a certain way to fit in with my peers. And, well, yeah, I always want to be respected. So I I don't just want to be creative. I want to be the best. And I can easily, honestly, I can easily copy what other people do such that I sound good because I know what other people see as good. So I was wondering if you could just kind of speak into that and see if there's like a major difference or if this is a frequent mistype between the two numbers. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. If you were standing right in front of me, I would look at you and say, you're a four, but you're not. So I'm going to talk more about all that. First of all, let's get rid of the myth that if you are an quote-unquote artsy type, that you're a four. Every number can be very talented and very interested in, in um, the arts. So it's a misunderstanding to think that all or even most musicians and poets and writers and painters, etc., are fours on the Enneagram. A, a lot are, but certainly not all. And for sure, not all fours are into the arts, literally. Secondly, threes can't hold melancholy. Threes can't hold um, less than upbeat. 
their uh, orientation to time is the future, and they are movers. They don't hold feelings. They read feelings, but then they don't usually use feelings to decide what they're going to do next. So um, that's another good way for you to kind of own that you're a four. Um, Your ability to be what other people are is an interesting piece, or to be the way that other people are. Fours generally don't want to do that. They want their own authentic way of being and of being in the world. So my guess would be that you're a four with a big three wing. I would say that there are two places on the Enneagram where wings are of particular importance. And one is right here between three and four. And the other is between eight and nine. So um, for my money, you're a four who wants to be uniquely successful and um, I would suggest that you live with that and quit questioning it for about three or four weeks and see, and just observe yourself and see where that leads you. You mentioned, and she asked about fours and threes and melancholy and emotions and dealing with feelings. In our Enneagram Journey curriculum class that we had recently in this first quarter, one of the threes, there were a few threes in our group, and they were all awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of them, I think her name was Ashley, if I can give her the correct credit. She talked about, because she's asking questions about threes and feelings because of the dominant and repressed. And she said, you know, I've got to know, you know, when bad things happen or not, I'm, I'm so good at I pre-grieve and I didn't even know, I know I laughed, I laughed when it happened and I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't, as a seven, yeah. any pre-post. You don't pre or post-grieve. Yeah. But I was wondering, I had, I didn't have time to ask her about that, what that meant. Mm-hmm. And however, another three in the group, uh, I believe she's a pastor in the area. Got it. That she said, I know completely what you mean, but it's not in the moment. And they kind of had their own conversation from there. But can you talk to that a little bit and help, help me at least? Sure. You know, I, I think we really underestimate the importance of orientation to time and the value of understanding it. So I don't think people pay enough attention to orientation to time because I don't know that they think about it. I never did until I learned the Enneagram. A three, th- there's some complex stuff in here, so I'll just state facts and then maybe we'll teach it at another time in a different way. But the fact is, three's orientation to time is the future. The fact is that threes take in information with feelings, but they don't use feelings to process the information that they've taken in. And fact, whatever number this is, is that they uh, really value efficiency and effectiveness. So a three observing something really sad. Like, let's say a three is with a friend whose grandfather has been sick and is really old and is dying. Then there's a chance that before the grandfather dies, they'll be with the friend and the friend will be talking about the grandfather and the three will pre-grieve that loss. A three will be more matter of fact about the loss. So everything adds up to your grandfather's probably dying. 
And that makes me sad for you. And that makes me sad for your grandmother. And my heart's kind of heavy. And I think when that happens, I'll try to do something for you that would make your load a little lighter. Maybe I can offer to uh, feed your dog for you during all that time when your family's here. And uh, then they move on. That's pre-grieving. What is the, what's the tool? What is the gift? What is the practice? There's nothing wrong with feeling your feelings the way they are or something to that affect people. Uh, Dad's line is feelings have no moral value. So is there a better way to handle that situation then? Because that all sounded great to me. (laughs) Of course it did. Um, And it, it also probably sounds really good to eights because all of you are feeling repressed. All three of you are oriented to the future. And if something gets to you uh, in your heart, it'll be um, unexpected. It'll be unexpected, and you'll be trying to manage it. So, you know, um, we're not intending to plug this product, but I discovered in recent years that I don't think anybody really knows how to grieve. What I do think would be true here for somebody who's talking about pre-grieving would be to um, commit to being present to the friend in our story that we made up, a commitment to be present to the friend close to the death of the grandfather instead of going and getting the dog and taking it home and going to make sure that there's food at her house and going and doing Rather, it would be good for aggressive numbers to stay and be with the friend and be present to sadness in order to kind of create a bigger space inside you to accommodate that kind of sadness. And last question on this topic. A lot of people, no matter what you're discussing, whether it's an individual Enneagram number or any topic, they know that you're a big reader. What book would you recommend for aggressive numbers, maybe specifically, but for all people surrounding grieving? The first book I would recommend is Tracks of a Fellow Struggler by John Claypool. That's got to be one of the most important books I've ever read, and it's about grieving. It's about grieving the loss of a child, but it's about grieving. And Because of my interest in grieving in recent years, I'm learning about the result of our inability to grieve. And so I think one of the most important books I recommend it highly as often as I remember to is a book by Miriam Greenspan, and the title of the book is Healing Through the Dark Emotions. And I also would recommend my teaching on the Enneagram and grieving. I worked hard to go through every number and talk about what grieving would look like and what is lost if we're not able to grieve in real time. So I I think this is a, I think grieving is a really big, important part of the pattern of life that we know of living, dying, and rising. And I think the effect of not grieving is or has the potential to be catastrophic. All right. So you talked about six and two 
and one and nine and three and four. Are there other numbers that you've heard people ask you questions about or that you know just in your knowledge that people struggle with differentiating? Yeah, um, there are. Interestingly enough, you know, ones are ones and sevens are sevens. But four and two struggle sometimes. And I think that's because one of the biggest differences in fours and twos is subtle. Twos are always focused on what's outside of them, and fours are always focused on what's on the inside, but both are 100% concerned about relationships. So uh, twos think about relationships all the time and work at them, and fours tell me that relationships are everything for them. There are some significant differences, though, and one is that twos care a lot what other people think. And fours, not so much. And fours hold on tight to uh, their authenticity. That's real important to them. And twos are not inauthentic. They're not disingenuous. But they're kind of not aware of it. I I would kind of, as a two, if I was going to uh, a big event, a gala of some kind, I would check with several other people to see what they're wearing. So I was sure that I would be appropriate. And a four would not necessarily do that. They would use it as an opportunity to wear something that they want to wear or that they create or um, that they think is really great and they don't get to wear it very often. I also think that when twos want to get something from you, what they want to get is relational and they want to... They want to be able to have an exchange, a meaningful exchange with other people. Fours want the deepest part of you. They want the, the deep stuff that is in you. And that's what they want to give you that is theirs. They want to give you the deepest part of them, the most complex feelings they have. You talked a minute ago about how important orientation to time is. Mm -hmm. And this could be way off based. Fours orientation to time is the past. Right. And twos is the present. And it seems like that could explain a lot of decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so my question is, so for instance, with the what to wear, is it true? Hypothetically, you got the gala, you're going to twos are worried about what to wear at this thing because of what's going on now in this relationship, et cetera. And so is that true that then the fours are because they are fours and not twos, then they'll reflect back on it and how it affected the relationship one way or the other. Yeah. And you know, I don't ever want to talk about fours, especially in this season right now of life in our culture without saying what for there's a historical teaching that fours and I've done it I've said it a lot that fours want to be special or they want to be unique and as you know I'm not saying that anymore I think fours want to be understood and I think they want to be known and if they fake it and wear what everybody else is wearing to the gala then they're not showing you who they are they're not giving you a chance to be known also um Fours are, they look inside themselves for what they need, and twos look to other people. 
Okay, two nines. Twos and nines, not two nines. The reason that people are confused as to whether or not they're a two or a nine is often because both numbers are other-referenced. Both numbers are willing to give up what they want or what they'd like to do for what somebody else wants. The big difference is, and you know, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of people who listen to the podcast haven't heard me teach. One of the best examples that I have for twos and nines is when we used to all live rurally and dad and I used to take y'all once a week to a bigger town to eat and y'all always wanted pizza. And I usually wanted seafood because I love seafood and dad always wants barbecue. And we would get in our minivan and head out and we would let y'all vote on what you wanted for dinner. And the kids always picked pizza. So by the time we get there, because dad's a nine, he has merged like nines do with the kids and he wants pizza too. And he's figured out what kind he's going to have, and he's happy as he can be. But I still want seafood. But because I want to be the coolest mom, I go with pizza. But I have to adapt rather than merge. So there's some martyring in twos that you don't find in nines. Even though we're both other referenced, Nines hold the line pretty easily if it's something they don't want to do. You can't, um, you can't manipulate a nine into getting them to do something that they don't want to do, and you can't a two. And I find that nines, because maybe of their concern about conflict and fragmentation, are hesitant to say what they want or what they'd like to do, and twos generally will say. And what about nines and fives? That one doesn't come up terribly often, so let's talk about the things that are the same and that causes it to come up from time to time. Um, they both are withdrawn, so that, that means they kind of wait for people to approach them. They share orientation of time, which is the past, and I would say that the difficulty distinguishing the two comes most often with an introverted nine. The difference in the two that is kind of the deal breaker is that fives wake up in the morning with a limited amount of energy, and everything they do costs them some of that energy. And they are, um, they measure, they measure, measure that. Nines also struggle with energy. They actually have the least energy of all the numbers on the Enneagram. But nines are more in control of that, in that for nines, they're trying to keep in anything that would cause conflict, and they're trying to keep out anything that would cost them their peace. And fives kind of don't give up their peace over conflict. Fives tend to just think they're right. And the final difference would be that nines are not cynical and sarcastic, and they often don't respond to it or relate to it well, and fives are cynical and sarcastic when they're in average or unhealthy space. And then one other pairing that you said sometimes is difficult, eights and threes. That occurs particularly for females as opposed to both genders. Female eights and female threes look an awful lot alike. 
They're both success-oriented and moving forward, and they think quick on their feet, and they're good problem solvers, and their way of approaching a problem. If someone shares a sad story with a three or an eight, they want to fix it right then. They don't want to deal with any of the feelings that go with that. The difference has to do with Threes uh, image craft, so threes can create the appropriate image for any group of people that they're with. So they can be different in different groups. Eights, once they mature a little bit, female eights, they learn to take the edges off of their eightness a little bit because it's costly if they don't learn that. But they don't image craft. They don't, they don't change their way of being or their image or how they want to be seen or how they are seen. So I would say that in threes, it's a matter of shape shifting. And in eights, it's a matter of making slight alterations to behavior. And those are two completely different things. Awesome. Uh, and to wrap up, if there is some sort of piece broad stroke, every number piece of advice for people who are either struggling identifying their numbers or advice to give for them to give to others who are doing that? As you well know, my number one piece of advice is don't take a test. Don't take a quiz. Don't take the long form. Find a way to hear the Enneagram taught orally by someone who knows how to do that or uh, read the book the road back to you, or do both, they're the better way of finding out your number. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to do all this work if you don't know what your number is. So the gift of the Enneagram is actually lost because the gift that we have is that we can do something with what we learn about ourselves. And if we're doing something about a number that we're not, then it's a, it's a, it's a waste of time. The second thing I would suggest is that if you're struggling to know what your number is, uh, get it, get a piece of paper and mark off all the numbers that you know you're not. And then only work with the numbers that are left. And one of the first things you might look at with the numbers that are left is orientation to time, because that might help you. And if you can get it down to two numbers or when you get it down to two numbers, then ask somebody who knows you well to help you figure it out. Always the most important thing that we can do is self-observation. So if you're really struggling, then stop thinking about it for a couple of weeks and just observe yourself as you go through the day and take a few notes at the end of every day about things you did that you do all the time and things you did that surprise you. I was so excited there for a second. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got something I can add to this at the end. And that was going to be the self-observation piece that... Uh, to reference the curriculum again, that's the homework every week, but then especially the first few because the point of the first four weeks is identifying your number. And I think maybe it's just me or my age group or fellow sevens or whatever it may be, or, or it's everyone. Before I started doing some self-reflection and anagram work, there wasn't a lot of self, self-observation. There wasn't, and especially being future-oriented, there right. was not a whole lot of looking at how I looked at a situation in the past, how I felt in that moment, how I handled that, etc. There was, I'm 
I'm going to do this differently next time type deal yeah. situationally. But none of that was about me. Right. That was about the situation. Right. And I, I can imagine if you, if, if someone were to attend a workshop or read the book and be able to cross some out sure. that then with, okay, the difference is like you've outlined in this podcast and that are outlined in the books and so on, then to observe yourself, you talk about journaling, mm-hmm. I believe in the curriculum and at other times to at night, you know, journal about your actions, your thoughts and your behavior during the day. And then after reflecting on that for a week, that that'd be a great way to figure that out. Thank you for joining us for the Enneagram Journey podcast today. I'm grateful that you're listening, and I'm particularly grateful for Amy, Abigail, and Carissa. Those were such great questions. Your decision to get in touch with us made the world a little bit better because it helps everybody. Till next time. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.